We had lain thus in bed, chatting and napping at short intervals, and Queequeg now and then affectionately throwing his brown, tattooed legs over mine, and then drawing them back. So entirely sociable and free and easy were we, when, at last, by reason of our confabulations, what little nappishness remained in us altogether departed, and we felt like getting up again, though daybreak was yet some way down the future. Yes, we became very wakeful, so much so that our recumbent position began to grow wearisome, and by little and little we found ourselves sitting up, the clothes well tucked around us, leaning against the headboard with our four knees drawn up close together, and our two noses bending over them, as if our knee pans were warming pans. We felt very nice and snug, the more so since it was so chilly out of doors. Indeed, out of bedclothes too, seeing that there was no fire in the room. The more so, I say, because truly to enjoy bodily warmth, some small part of you must be cold. For there is no quality in this world that is not what it is merely by contrast. Nothing exists in itself. Moby Dick, Herman Melville. Hi, it's me, the ghost that lives in your headphones. I used to be a student leader at the Center for Social Impact, but I'm a ghost now after being destroyed online with facts and logic. My mother was so disappointed, she drop-kicked me out of the house and into space, where I promptly froze or maybe boiled. The process was confusing enough that my perception of reality temporarily stopped, much like when a cartoon character runs off a cliff but like doesn't really notice yet and just keeps running on the air. This temporary suspension of the laws of thermodynamics meant I was allowed a moment to appreciate the beauty of the void to which I had been thrust. And from that distant position, I saw an epic unfold. Two houses, both alike in dignity, in fair Utah Valley. On the one hand, Buddhist practitioners of mindfulness and nonviolence. And on the other, anarchists. That's right, you heard me right. Here in Utah Valley, Buddhists. Why, I was so shocked, I clutched my pearls tight enough to open a portal through which my spirit could escape my exploding slash imploding corpse, and now I'm here, in a pair of AirPods. Every pair of AirPods, actually. And occasionally Samsung Galaxy Buds. Just the lavender ones, though. Anyway, yeah, anarchism and Buddhism at your doorstep. I bet you thought the only religion was Mormonism or anti-Mormonism, and the only politics were MAGA-Republican or non-MAGA-Republican. No shade, by the way. I've been both those genders. But as it turns out, much like gender, politics and religion, and other things, probably, are spectrums. And these two communities represent non-majority, also known as minority, perspectives and experiences. That's where the comparison ends, though. I mean, what could be more different than a Buddhist and an anarchist? Welcome back to Critical Mass Podcast, brought to you by the Center for Social Impact at UVU, located on the first floor of the Student Center, right across from the ballroom. This is your official invitation to come say hello and see for yourself what we're all about. Now, in physics, the term critical mass refers to the minimum amount of material needed to spark a chemical reaction. In social impact language, we use the term critical mass to talk about the minimum number of people we need in order to create social change, or even that initial spark that starts a social movement. But assuming that number is more than one, and it usually is, how do we build a community capable of starting and sustaining positive social change? 
That's what we're going to try and answer here for season two of Critical Mass, Critical Connections. As I mentioned in the intro, this episode, we're looking at two local groups which formed to address community-identified needs not met by more mainstream systems here in Utah. Despite developing in the same place, under the same conditions, they could not be more different in ideology, aesthetic, and perception. These communities, the Awakening Valley Sangha and Trashburg Distro, fill niches for those who live on the margins in very different ways. This episode will deal with themes of cultural and spiritual appropriation and misappropriation, religious trauma, and racism, specifically anti-Asian racism. Links to resources, research, and further reading are available in the show notes. As a reminder, Critical Mass Podcast is produced by the Center for Social Impact of Utah Valley University, but it was researched, scripted, recorded, and edited by students. Any and all opinions expressed by me or interviewees belong to us alone and don't necessarily reflect the opinions or values of the Center for Social Impact or of Utah Valley University. Before jumping into our topic today, I have a poem to share from a UVU student, Gabriella White. If you'd like your story or poem featured on the pod, check the show notes for information on how to reach out. So, poetry, the boring pastime of the elite, right? Well, not so much. Poetry is one of the oldest and most accessible forms of expression. A poem, in many ways, is just a story that is condensed to its most essential, most impactful form. And most people like stories, but when was the last time you really listened to a story? If you're like me, you usually have a podcast in one year, a video essay in another, and something streaming on the TV all at the same time. I think I do this to protect myself. Maybe I'm afraid of the silence or the vulnerability that silence implies, but I want this space, this virtual space, to be a place of bravery, one where we embrace vulnerability instead of run from it. In that spirit, I'd like to invite you now to be brave and vulnerable and listen deeply through the duration of this poetry reading. This is Faustian Distress by UVU student Gabriella White. Faustian Distress. In the darkest minds of men our tale unfolds, an epic for all the wretchedness untold, where the reach of rich men's tendrils stretch and coil, and demons feast upon humanity's toil. In the heart of the city the skyscrapers rise, a labyrinth of steel and glass, tis mammon's disguise. Full erect, where the wealthy flourish their power, built upon the anguish of the desperate each hour. Beneath cloaked facade, under politician spells, the demons slumber in the depths of hell itself, drawn forth by greed and the insatiable desire to feed upon the souls who fuel the brimstone fire. They whisper in the boardroom's sinister demands, enticing businessmen with promises unheard, contracts signed in blood, the devil's book binding tight, secured hold over corridors of blaring white. Lady Liberty masking the infernal dance, as costumed puppets perform their fiendish trance. Minds fooled by monetary armor of success, but inside empty vessels consumed by distress. Streets echo cries of marginalized downtrodden, their voices stifled and dreams long been forgotten. Their bodies exploited for profits they create, enslaved by this system, burdened with blame and hate. As the demons grow stronger, their power expands. Darkness grips the city, tightening its clawed hands. The divide widens, consuming all, any class, leaving nothing but suffering, despair, and wrath. Yet, amidst the chaos, a flicker of light, a rebellion stirs from the depths of the night. 
voices united, speaking truth against the lies. They stand tall, refusing to be the fallen's prize. They rally the oppressed, the workers unseen, against hell's legion and the capitalist machine. Weapons not of silver, but solidarity and hope, as they fight for justice against Beelzebub's yoke. Will money's systemic grip forever hold sway? Or will humanity's spirit rise and the demons decay? We can be heroes. It's on our hands to reverse the horrors of a system that values self-gain and restore the balance, breaking free from this pain. That was Faustian Distress by Gabriella White. She is a student here at UVU who has been published on some on-campus literary journals, such as essays. Thank you so much for sharing your work, Gabby. And thank you, audience, for listening deeply. If you'd like to have your work read here on the podcast, check the show notes for information on how to submit your work. All right, I'm done stalling now, I promise. As I mentioned earlier, (laughs) twice now, this episode is about some local communities, specifically Trashbird Distro, the anarchists, and Awakening Valley Sangha, the Buddhists. Let's start with the trash birds, shall we? They are collective based in Provo and Orem. They provide community outreach, mutual aid, and a sense of community a bit outside the norm. I first became aware of the trash birds when I stumbled across the really, really free market here at UVU, which was actually based on the market held by both the Salt Lake really, really free market and the really, really free market head by the trash birds. I found out about the really, really free market hosted by the Trash Birds at Kiwanis Park the first Sunday of every month. I went to check it out myself, and I gotta say, the vibes were immaculate. There were people playing ukulele, there was a knitting circle, there was like a big speaker blasting um, music. I don't, I don't really have a good ear for music, so I can't tell you like what the genre was, but it was music um, and it seemed like cool music to me. So take that for what it's worth. The main draw of the market was all the free shit, right? And I noticed that most of it was clothes, though I could stumble across just about anything. Like I saw like a record player, I got a Zoodles maker. So I was like just wandering around uh, seeing all this random shit. And again, most of it was clothes, but there were some other things. And uh, I wanted to find out like who was in charge so that I could get an idea about who this community was, um, what they're about. So I started asking around and by like the fourth person that I asked, I realized there was no one in charge. Uh, This was a collective run by anarchists and anarchists do not believe in hierarchy. Um, One of the things that I really do like about Trashbird is everybody is a leader, which, you know, is kind of a part of anarchism. Um, everyone's a leader, everyone is involved. Um, we kind of do our own thing, but at the end of the day, we all get together and get stuff done. I thought this lack of organization would make it difficult to like get a beat on these people, but I was able to piece together their history. And like I said, their vibes were immaculate, so clearly something was working. So I talked to Justice in a little bit more detail. Uh, he was one of the oldest members, and he was part of the Trashbirds before they even were called the Trashbirds, and they were just a Discord server. My name is Justice Thomas. I use he, him pronouns. General information background, I grew up here. I grew up in Spanish Fork and Payson, Utah. I went on an LDS mission to Texas, uh, Fort Worth area, and then I went to UVU, and I kind of hopped around working for local governments, school district, and I'm a community activist, organizer. Initially, the first kind of foray into building, um, I guess, an anarchist 
focused group was actually just a an interesting little project with discord where i was frustrated with how discord as a platform is very hierarchical you know each role is above another role um you cannot do anything um collectively and i'm very interested in non-hierarchical organization so in my in some of the other Discord servers, I was like trying to think of ways to break this down a little bit. So I created a Discord called the Anarchy Zone, where everyone was an admin, everyone shared those powers, and then I just kind of put it out there to see what happened and invited some friends. It was on the UVU hub for a while. I don't, I don't even. It, it was a, a very interesting project, and a lot of people kind of met through that and. It was a very fun creative space where we were able to um, really think outside the box. And, you know, we, we started meeting up in person. Um, we started to, you know, really break down a lot of political theory. We started to test out a lot of these uh, concepts that we were all interested in. And ultimately, it led to wanting to, you know, push a little further. So anarchism is part of the identity of the trash birds, but it's not a prerequisite. They're a community that has no leadership or authority structure. Each member is treated as an equal and can have a say in the decision-making process. I mean, to me, that sounds really hectic. <laughs> it sounds downright chaotic. And chaos, right? That's how anarchism is typically seen in mainstream society. Media often uses anarchism like as a synonym for destructive chaos, like as interchangeable ideas. But that's not what I saw when I went to this anarchist collective. And again, I saw knitting circles and ukulele playing. It didn't seem like that destructive chaos that I had been trained to associate with anarchism. So I wanted to ask Justice about that, about um, the connection between anarchism and chaos. It's, it's an interesting question, though, because, you know, what is chaos? It's you know, you look at a suburban grid, you look at a parking lot, you look at strip malls, and they're very orderly, and I hate them, you know? <laughs> and I think a lot of people hate them. I think people go to places that are um, eclectic and homey, and, and um, they like to fill their home with plants that don't follow uh, rigid grid lines. They, they like to, um, you know, th- there is a, an element that I think sometimes we call chaos that is painted to be bad that maybe it's not so bad you know maybe um trying to force everyone into little boxes is is orderly um doesn't make us happy <laughs> i think i think when, but you know i think what you're saying is you know when people think of chaos they think of um societal complete societal breakdown they think of people turning on each other as soon as they you know get the opportunity because why not why not stab your neighbor in the back because now suddenly there's a cop that there's no cop to stop you so and um i i think that you know as many people have found as they've grown to know people who are passionate about anarchism is that these are people who have the most faith in humanity and that's because they meet people and they know them and they love them there is not this othering there is not this fear and i I think you can see it in natural disasters oftentimes when, you know, the power goes out, an earthquake happens, something breaks, a pipeline breaks, floods your street, and what happens? You know, people come out and they they gather information, they see if people need help, they share what they have. I've been in very few 
can count them on no fingers, experiences <laughs> where something unexpected happened and I was meant to figure it out with some strangers and we immediately turned on each other like rabid animals. You know, because humans are collaborative and we, we, we enjoy other humans. We <laughs> like to meet people, we like to make friends, we like to socialize, we build our lives around it. And the idea that inside every single person and the only thing that's keeping them from just becoming this antisocial monster is the threat of a man with a badge and a gun to come after you if you don't behave. It seems there's more to the trash birds, more to anarchism than meets the eye. The trash birds created their own identity beyond just the theory of anarchism by focusing on the community they built, by hosting outreach and distribution events, cooking for the homeless, and providing safe spaces for queer people and people of color, they're able to connect with people and hear from them directly what they need, rather than deciding for them what their needs are and how they will be met. While the theory of anarchism is important, it's the basis for their structure or lack of structure, the trash birds specifically prioritize identifying community needs and meeting them. When I first found out there was an anarchist coalition in Utah, my thought was like, what? Huh? Here? But when I looked into it, it turns out that Utah is no stranger to anarchism. See, anarchists historically believe in two concepts, individual autonomy and consensual cooperation. Dyer D. Lum, an American poet and anarchist who was around in the like mid-1800s, came to the defense of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, colloquially known as the Mormon or LDS Church, as it was pursued by the federal government due to its practice of polygamy. Interestingly, he wasn't the only one, and the LDS Church found allies in American anarchists all throughout the 19th century. These people criticized the government's intervention in the LDS Church's right to self-determination. Their support wasn't without critique, such as from anarchist and feminist Gertrude Kelly or anarchist Benjamin Tucker, who was opposed to any formalized marriage system, including polygamy. But still, anarchists saw the LDS experiment as one aligned with anarchist ideals of individual freedom and community cooperation and coalition building. Now, the Utah of today is quite different from the Utah of the 19th century. Still, it seems that Utah has always been a place for anarchism, and that's still true today. Trashbird Distro believes in a hands-on approach to community building. One of their, for lack of better words, battle cries, <laughs> coined by one of their long-term members, is, it's not weird to do things. My, my friend Dave, I, he also, I mean, my, my little quote at the beginning, I think that Dave's slogan has kind of replaced it in some ways, in more concise ways, and he just always says it's not weird to do things. I'm trying to make it not weird to do things because it's not. It's not weird. Like it's if you want to, you want to do something, do it. And so, and and it's not monetized. You know, you're not competing for views. You're not competing against other people to try and make a living. If you show up and give something at the really really free market, I mean, you're not. Uh, you know, you don't have like other booths next to you that are getting more sales or whatever. So <laughs> if something that you made or brought or have to offer catches someone's eye and you connect there, you know, that, that's just because you, you connected. That's, there's no competition. There's no expectation. There's no hurdle. It's just um, humans connecting over things that they're passionate about. And that's, I think we're missing that in a lot of our socializing and in a lot of our communities. Do you have any final things that you'd like to share before I ask my final question? Um, do what we did start something and just try it. It's not weird to do things. Just uh, 
make it happen. And you don't have to have everything figured out right from the start. And it doesn't have to cost any money. Um, just talk to people. It, the power's in your relationships. Instead of waiting around for government officials to supply aid, Trashbird Distro prefers to be in the trenches or out in the community helping where they can. The focus is on building community strength, and this is done by building relationships. Start wherever you are and get involved. Community power is found in relationships. Important that people find a place to vote. I think in life you need people that you can trust and feel safe with and be vulnerable with. So I think communities like these are giving spaces and voices to people who maybe have in the past have felt like they've been disconnected from the wider community. So I think it's really great that these communities exist and they've sprung up. This space that's here, the Provo one, has created a, a safe space for many people who um, maybe don't feel like they're part of the wider community in Utah County, especially. We wanted to make this kind of a closer anarchist circle in a place where there's no real left anything representation, you know? So we wanted to, you know, build something down here that is very focused on these areas, that is very focused on hopefully helping people in these areas, defending people in these areas, um, you know, just community aid that's actually within our community. I think it's, I think it's mostly getting to know the people around us and um, understanding like what they want, uh, like these events to look like. Um, and out of that, we have put on um, a Pride Without Police because enough people wanted it. And so enough people were able to pull from their various resources and bring it together. We had a live band play. Um, we had a big barbecue. Um, we're putting on like a community fair in October. So that was kind of like our biggest goal was just trying to build community, trying to let people down here know that there are, you know, people like there is community here and like all we have to do is meet up to see that it's it's big. Thank you so much to Trashbird Distro for sharing your stories. All right, who's ready for a shift in tone? <laughs> to help us switch gears from anarchism to Buddhism, Carl and Camlin from the Awakening Valley Sangha are going to invite us to mindfulness with the sound of a bell. Take it away, Carl and Camlin. Take a moment to arrive in your body, breathing in and breathing out. Breathing in, I smile to my body. Breathing out, I am calm. As we breathe in, we notice where our body is maybe touching the ground, touching our chair, how it feels. And if there are any areas of tension or any areas calling attention, we smile and send our breath to that area too. Breathing in, I have arrived. Breathing out, I am home. And maybe as you breathe, thoughts come up 
Am I doing this right? I've got to do this thing. What's coming next? Whatever thoughts arise, we can smile even to that thought. I see you. And we breathe that thought. There's plenty of time to get to that later. Because right now, we are breathing. Breathing in. I have arrived. Breathing out. I am home. And to close, we just offer more smiles, more light, more thanks to our body and our breath for being here. Thank you, Carl and Camlin. We'll be hearing more from them in a moment, but first I want to explain myself a little. <laughs> you might be asking yourself, what? <laughs> we were talking about anarchists and now we're talking about Buddhists? Can't you pick a theme and stick with it, Danny? Well, first of all, no. <laughs> but secondly, hopefully you'll be able to draw the same connections I did between Trashbird Distro and Awakening Valley Sangha. And if not, well, you get two cool stories. The Awakening Valley is a Buddhist Sangha that is, a community that meets regularly and practices meditation and studies the Dharma. Awakening Valley is located in Provo, and they meet at the Yoga Underground every Sunday from 1.30 to 3. The Sangha opens its doors for regular practitioners and brand new visitors. Here, people can meditate, share their joys and struggles, and discuss the Dharma, or the teachings of the Buddha and Buddhist leaders. Awakening Valley Sangha follows the Plum Village Buddhist tradition started by Thich Nhat Hanh, a world-renowned Buddhist figure who was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize and has published over 100 writings on meditation and has founded multiple monasteries, sanghas, and practice centers across Europe, Asia, and the US. And he did all this before his death in 2022. As part of research for this episode, both myself and one of my researchers attended one of these meetings to see for ourselves what it was like. We took part in guided and silent meditations, perform dynamic exercises meant to engage and connect the body and mind, and listen to fellow practitioners who found their own way to practice Buddhism. These practitioners, when sharing their experiences with the Sangha, discussed how internalizing and applying Buddhist concepts of mindfulness helped them understand the true source of their suffering and thereby ease or eliminate suffering in their lives to gain lasting peace. The Awakening Valley, in this regard, is very much in line with other Sanghas across the US and the world at large, but with a key exception, being in Provo, Utah, the vast majority of the Sangha's practitioners, from the organizers to the guests, were white Americans. This racial makeup is a point of contention surrounding the representation of Buddhism in the United States. According to a 2021 report by NBC, approximately two-thirds of all Buddhists in the United States are Asian American or of Asian descent. But this isn't accurately reflected in mainstream media. Now, this isn't to say that Buddhism needs to be gatekept by its Asian American practitioners. Amanda Rivera, a contributor for the Buddhist magazine Lion's Roar, said, quote, I think to myself how very uncommon it is in America to find a setting where so many different types of people are gathered. When I look around, I can see an African American, an Asian, a lesbian, gay, or transgender person, 
a young person, an elderly person, a Hispanic person, and more. I find it very comforting and validating. I don't think our organization is really focusing on diversity per se. It just kind of happens and we respond to the need and inspiration that people have and we have to find ways to address the different types of people who come to us in a way that is respectful and inclusive. We encourage everyone to practice Buddhism, regardless of their race, color, sexual orientation, or class. Buddhism is not exclusive, end quote. But it's more complicated than that, right? Kim Tran, a Buddhist, wrote for the medium, quote, my family and I are from a place where Buddhist monks self-immolated in political protest of war. Our country was devastated at unprecedented levels by chemical and physical warfare. Monastics were so connected to the human suffering of that pain that they set their bodies on fire. For me, and many other Asian Americans, this is Buddhism. Asian cultural practices are, with painful frequency, stripped of their context and meaning. But they don't need to be. We must engage with Buddhism the same way we would a Judeo-Christian religion like Catholicism or Christianity. Failing to provide either with a basic level of reverence is deeply disrespectful and honestly downright racist. At its most basic, Buddhism asks you to simply connect to human suffering and bring about its end. Recognizing cultural appropriation is just the beginning of that process." End quote. So on the one hand, Buddhism is a very welcoming and accepting faith. But as Kim Tran pointed out, it's not immune from cultural appropriation and the harm that that can cause. But what does that look like in practice? And how can someone know the difference between a practice which is culturally or spiritually appropriative versus one that is, as Kim Tran put it, deeply connected to human suffering and dedicated to bringing about the end of suffering? One of the surest places to find misrepresentation and appropriation is American media representation. I chatted with Dr. Ruan Chun Ma, a Taiwanese professor of medieval literature at UVU, to discuss this and other issues surrounding Buddhism in America. Hello, I'm Dr. Ruan Chun Ma. My pronouns are he, him. I am an assistant professor in the English department here at UVU. I teach medieval literature, which generally means Old and Middle English literature, as well as you know, related literature from France and other places. I'm um, originally from Taiwan. I was born in London, but I grew up in Taiwan and the U.S., and I lived in New York before moving to Utah. So I've, been, so I've lived in many parts of the U.S. and the world. I think I'll start by addressing the question about you know, how this type of portrayal uh, has affected you know, generally how Western culture understands Buddhism. And from again, this is from what I've seen uh, in terms of my kind of paying attention to popular culture growing up um, into the present, that what you just described, Danny, often creates a kind of mystique about Buddhism, a kind of mysteriousness that this is something that is from a unknown you know, region of the world, the unknown quote-unquote East. Um, and I think as someone who studies literature, it's kind of these kind of generalizations and stereotypes can get really problematic in that they just collapse any sort of meaningful difference that exists within these um, religions or different strands, sects, beliefs. They're, the kind of richness gets overlooked. And I think even more, even in a kind of even more troubling way, this kind of mystique, mysteriousness leads to a kind of exoticization of Buddhism as this you know, f attractive foreign set of beliefs that uh, in some ways becomes s more superficial than substantive in terms of, of a belief system. And it can be really 
from in my mind at least it can be really reductive and it doesn't honor the kinds of religious practices that I grew up with or that I think many other Buddhists have taken to and adhered to. So it becomes kind of stereotyped and cast as mysterious, full of mystique, unknown, exotic, rather than a meaningful set of lived beliefs and that's ongoing and dynamic. You know, just as you know, many other religions update the doctrine. You know, Buddhism does the same thing. Or you know, there are different discussions about how to you know, approach different social social issues that emerge. So it kind of does a disservice to Buddhism, I think, as a living religion, this type of stereotyping. Not only can it be dehumanizing, it kind of robs the depiction of religion of any kind of meaningful dimension. In other words, this is if if it's kind of being treated as in a kind of you know, mysterious, mystique-filled way, it kind of essentially denies space for those you know, religious practices or faiths to be substantiated, to be be kind of given their due dignity, you know, how they view the world, what they value about the human condition, what they pay attention to about you know, human existence. So, and there, so there's a I think a rich set of questions that regardless of what your faith or creed is that you can ask about religion and spirituality and more often than not I think with Buddhism you know it, it's not given that space or that that space is withdrawn in favor of entertainment value in favor of uh, in a kind of gimmicky way that you no know, this is done as a plot device rather than as a meaningful artistic component While belief and practice in Buddhism is not inherently linked to any racial category, white America has a long history of systemically anti-Asian policy and action, sometimes by targeting specifically non-Christian belief systems such as Buddhism in order to attack the person who is practicing it. Given this history, what are your thoughts and feelings with the new popularity of Buddhism in predominantly white circles? No, I think I'll start by saying that Buddhism does not have as many political intersections as some other religions. In many ways, I think Buddhism tries to transcend that, transcend the sense of, you know, what can we do together in order to, to see through this problem or to see through difficulties and issues to kind of rise up, you no, know, so to speak, rise above that. And mm-hmm. now Buddhism is not always known for being involved in social activism or political activism, although there are some notable exceptions. I would say you know, a couple things come to mind. There are, for example, most recently in Myanmar, or Burma rather, its treatment of Muslim Rohingya refugees was kind of colored in a large part by a, by a Buddhist government and was kind of driven by Buddhist discrimination or dislike towards a Muslim minority. Uh, so there are intersections of Buddhism and politics. But I think more to what you asked, I think the popularity of Buddhism, predominantly white circles, I, I would like to see more, a kind of more thoughtful approach, that this isn't just a kind of fancy way of dressing up your mindfulness. You can be mindful and meditate without Buddhism. No, there are many ways, there are many multiple traditions uh, and multiple ways of practices of meditation and reflection, secular as well as religious. So why Buddhism in particular? Big thanks to Dr. Ma for speaking with me and sharing his lived experience. Let's turn now, finally, to our other community for this episode, Awakening Valley Sangha. I spoke to Carl and Camlin, who both facilitate Sunday practice, and asked them some tough questions. Um, my name's Carl, and my pronouns are he, him. I'm a facilitator at Awakening Valley Sangha. We practice Buddhism 
We practice mindfulness in the tradition of Zen Master Thich Nhat Hanh. It's been a wonderful experience for me, and I just love sharing it with people because before I found this practice, I didn't have a lot of peace, and now I know how because Thich Nhat Hanh taught me how. I'm grateful for that, and I'm excited about talking about this on this podcast with y'all. So my name is Camlin. My pronouns are she or they. My pretty much life work is in personal development and sustainability and then rippling that out to community development and sustainability. The practice of Buddhism or mindfulness totally falls in line with that because I I needed this practice in my life for my personal sustainability and healing and all the things. So when I am not facilitating as well at the Awakening Valley Sangha or even just receiving from the other beautiful team of facilitators. I'm a part-time teacher at a, a local high school, teaching electives, and then I work on a number of other projects, all kind of tied to those same those same things. And I'm also happy to be here. I love conversation. Conversation's a mindfulness practice for me, listening and, and learning, so I'm glad to be invited. In a 2021 article, NBC News reported that approximately two-thirds of Buddhists in the U.S. are Asian or of Asian-American descent. Yet, Buddhists are often portrayed in the media by white men and women who have had spiritual awakenings and significant changes of faith. Carl, as a white American man who did have a spiritual awakening and a significant change of faith, that story actually mirrors your lived experience to some degree. What are your feelings about sort of the problematic aspects of this kind of representation or maybe over-representation in in media, despite it being kind of accurate (laughs) to yourself? That's a really good question. I'm grateful for it. I'm glad that you're not shying away from a question like this because it's really easy to not dare to ask questions that might be uncomfortable, but it's important too. That's part of looking deeply, looking deeply into myself. Um, And I do look at myself and I go, am I doing any of that? And I try to just look and, and look honestly. How do you feel stories could be more accurately, compassionately portrayed without contributing to the erasure of Asian Americans and Asians here in the United States? It is always the white guy that is, it's all about his his, uh, experience. And I think they need to tell more stories. I think there needs to be more stories. Why Buddhism? After all, you can be mindful without being Buddhist. So uh, why Buddhism rather than secular mindfulness practices? Um, I, I love that um, Thai teaches that you can be what, whatever you are, all that you are, and, and still practice. On the one hand, we want to say, you know, race is superficial. Race is skin deep. We, are, we all have the same heart. We all are people. We all are human. And on the other hand, we want to say we live in reality <laughs> where people are affected by these skin deep realities that are socially constructed but have material consequences, right? So, you know, we say oh, we, we would want this to be completed by people who, if they're not you know, specifically like Vietnamese themselves, then are at least not the overrepresented identity that we have already heard this story told by these people. Specifically, I'm, I'm speaking of white people. But at the same time, again, going back to shouldn't race not matter? <laughs> Isn't that the goal? And are we not reinforcing that by saying, you know, we need this story to be told by non-white people? 
I certainly have my thoughts on it. Uh, but Camlin, I want to hear more about yours, especially because I think that this conversation connects directly with something that we brushed on uh, last time we met, but I, I was hoping to get more into. You mentioned earlier when we were speaking that it was very important for you or very impactful for you to experience yoga that was led by another person of color. Can you speak a little bit more to that experience? Yes, 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 yes. I was specifically talking about the experience of the yoga instructor that Reclaim Utah connected with. Her name is Brianna, or Bree. What was impactful about it was a number of elements that I feel like were just very intentional. We were outside connecting, doing this on the ground, on the earth. The instructor opened with identifying their heritage, their culture, where they came from, how their ancestors connected with this practice, introduced us to some language and what the meaning of that language was. They like acknowledged the source of where this knowledge was coming from. And they had a beautiful, colorful playlist, <laughs> like color as in um, the rhythms and things that like in the average yoga studio that I might walk into Utah, they might not have the kind of sounds that this yoga instructor chose. There was a lot of validation in the movement, in the language, in the encouragement as we were journeying together through our bodies, a lot of advocating for the inner voice and inner listening, and I loved it. It's, it's hard to trace, like, yeah, I could say, like, all of that is because they were a person of color, but it could have been, like, a mixture, right, of being a person of color, being the gender they were, coming from the experience they were experiencing, coming from the family culture they came from. So it's all of the intersecting identities that they had. That is what they showed up with and brought, which I appreciated. So to follow up on that a little bit, some people, and especially people coming from the dominant white culture here in Utah, may not understand why this mattered to you. Like, shouldn't it just matter that the instructor is well-trained and knows what they're doing? What was the importance for you that in that vulnerable moment while you were connecting with your body, what was the importance or the value that you experienced that you were following was specifically another person of color? Hmm. There is definitely a kind of molecular settling that happens. Energetically, your body feels safe. And that's not something I can consciously control, but it's something that happens. So simply being settled <laughs> in my atoms and in my body with that person is a benefit. It's important, I don't know, to see myself in, in these spaces. It kind of validates like, oh yeah, like I can belong to this too, essentially. Um, or if I wanted to like someday like guide this, like this is a way in which I could do it authentically. It's inspiring to, to simply feel that belonging. There's a sangha, I think it's like East Bay, East Bay sangha, I think out of like Northern California, again, Buddhist, but POC led. I subscribe to that because from the YouTube videos and, and discussions that I see, like there's a language that is present when someone comes with an experience that relates to mine. They put things into words that like, oh, that's the wording that I needed to describe the experience that I had. Um, and I'm sure that that's something that can tie to any kind of identity, right? When you connect with someone that shares or comes from an experience that is connected to yours, there's shared language, there's identified pinpointed emotion, there's um, a, an intentionality. There's a lot. Again, big thanks to Carl and Cameron for being willing to come onto the podcast and uh, share those very vulnerable stories. Again, they're from the Awakening Valley Sangha. They meet Sundays at 1.30. Maybe go see for yourself what they're about. All right. I have a confession to make everyone. 
I've told you two lies during this episode. The first lie is that I stumbled upon these communities by chance, and that's not entirely true. In fact, I've been attending Awakening Valley Sangha with semi-regularity for the past few years. As for the trash birds, it's true that I only met them recently, but I've been going to the really, really free market at UVU ever since I noticed it a few semesters ago. So I originally sought out Awakening Valley Sangha for the exact reason that Professor Ma cautioned against. I wanted a community that was free from the baggage and trauma I associated with Christian traditions. As for the trash birds, while I'm not an anarchist, I am extremely poor. <laughs> and so my connection to both these communities has been personal rather than professional as I originally implied. The second lie is that I framed these communities as oppositional, diametrically opposed, water and oil, Capulets and Montagues. In truth, both of these communities were started in basically the same way. <laughs> People wanted community, but couldn't find a place that was both nearby and welcoming. And so rather than traveling up to Salt Lake City, they built community where they stood. While one is religious and one is secular, their goals and the impact that they have on communities are actually completely harmonious. I am not a Buddhist and I am not an anarchist, but in these Buddhist and anarchist places, I have found space to develop connections and build community. As Justice said, if these communities aren't for you for whatever reason, do what they did, make your own. Identify your core values and beliefs and look for those critical connections so you can develop and grow community. That might sound a little bit glib, as if it's like that easy, but you know, isn't it? Carl, Camlin, the trash birds, they aren't any different from you and me. They're just people who put themselves out there, let themselves be vulnerable and honest, and in so doing, they made, maintained, and cultivated critical connections. Okay, well, and that's a really nice story to tell, <laughs> but we're not done yet because no community is without problems. And I'd really be lying to you if I told you it was that easy. So Awakening Valley Sangha has to grapple with a history of anti-Asian bigotry, cultural appropriation, and more. Trashbird Distro, cool as a decentralized community is, also happens to be predominantly white. <laughs> and just as they reproduced hierarchy on Discord, they'll likely reproduce other harmful social hierarchies and mental models. And then, beyond the litany of potential issues inside these communities that may arise, just identifying as an anarchist or a Buddhist, both fringe belief systems, it's just not an easy thing to do. They may have to deal with threats of violence against them by those who don't understand them, on top of the struggle of building a community with no pre-existing plan or structure and no help from dominant systems that tend to enforce the same systems and hierarchy that produce the harm in the first place. My point is, just like these two communities, if you, listener, try and build community, you are absolutely going to fuck up or at least face some pushback. But does that mean you shouldn't try? Personally, I think that the problems that come up during community building are not failures. They're opportunities. Opportunities to try again, to iterate, to build and grow and learn. Like Professor Ma said, it's an invitation, right? It's an invitation to learn and then you act on that learning. Framed like that, the only way to fail is by giving up or not trying at all. But... That does not mean we all have to start from scratch and make every possible mistake along the way, right? Through community-engaged learning and research, like what we did here today, 
we can build off other successful communities, learn from their mistakes, and give ourselves a better starting position. Then we can share what we learned with these other communities and be a strength to them as they build and iterate. There will still be problems, but we'll be ready to face them together. And the way to do that is to start. What did the trash birds do? What did Awakening Valley Sangha do? They looked around them, identified those with similar goals, needs, and values, and they just started. Be it a Discord server or a Sangha in a box, they started with those initial connections and they intentionally made space for growth. So look around you. Where can you start? Nothing exists in itself. If you flatter yourself that you are all over comfortable and have been so for a long time, then you cannot be said to be comfortable anymore. But if, like Queequeg and me in the bed, the tip of your nose or the crown of your head be slightly chilled, why then, indeed, in the general consciousness, you feel most delightfully and unmistakably warm. For this reason, a sleeping apartment should never be furnished with a fire, which is one of the luxurious discomforts of the rich. For the height of this sort of deliciousness is to have nothing but the blanket between you and your snugness and the cold of the outer air. Then there you lie, like one warm spark in the heart of an Arctic crystal. Moby Dick, Herman Melville. Thank you to Dr. Ma, Dr. Ewan, Justice, Camlin, and Carl for sharing your stories. Thank you to the researchers and scriptwriters, Dane Flitton, Daniel Ruiz, and Janessa Purcell. Thank you to my community outreach researchers, Jacqueline Pimentel, Kimberly Morales-Romero, McKay Jones, and Savannah Clyde. Big thanks to my sound engineers and editors, Haley Johnson and Jaden Higby. Special thanks to our featured artist, Gabriella White, for the poem. And thank you to Professor Gloria Young for helping with research and cultural contextualization. And finally, special thanks to Joe Mower, Cassie Bingham, Jamie Williams, and Lori Phipps. And thank you for listening. Our citation list is linked in the show notes, as well as the center's socials. That's at UVU Social Impact on Insta. Big thanks to Cam, our marketing fellow, for running that. Also in the show notes are links to Awakening Valley Sangha, Trashbird Distro, and other resources. The Center for Social Impact is located in the Student Wellness Building in SC 105 across from the ballroom. We have events every Thursday, including Movie Night, the Impact Speaker Series, Impact 101, and giveaways. This pod releases monthly, so be sure to follow so you don't miss our next episode in November. I'll be talking to local indigenous activists who are fighting to save the Great Salt Lake before it turns into poison and kills us all. If all that sounds like too much, and I get that, just come stop by the center, say hi to Lori at the front desk, check out our little social impact library or our chill out rooms. If you're lucky, you'll see some of us impact fellows at our desk. Come say hi. Let's build critical connections. Let's build community.